Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks. And I'm not going to lie to you, Mary Alice, this is a date that I've had circled on the calendar for a long time. It is the uh, the final day for Democratic candidates for president to have a qualifying poll for the next debate, the ABC News debate, uh, which will be held uh, about two weeks from now in Houston, Texas. It is a day of, of tension. It is a day of some controversy for many of the campaigns. Uh, we are Where awaiting... your anxiety is through the roof. I will <laughs> tell everyone how you stressed can tell, you can tell. You can tell. There's not going to be news to some, some of our listeners, at least. Uh, this, is, this is a big one. It is maybe the most significant deadline so far in the Democratic race for president. And, and I think it comes at a, an interesting time in the race because, Mary Alice, it's come amid a, a rather interesting debate around electability and what that means. And at a time when Democratic voters tell us they're pretty ready for a field to winnow. When I'm out there talking to people, they often say there's just too many candidates to keep track of. Having those uh, big two-night affairs with 20 people has been hard for some voters who are uh, not the super activist type. So I think that there's a lot of folks who are ready to start looking at a smaller field. Well, and the field will be smaller as the details will come out over the next 24 hours. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later in the program with Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who's been at the center of a couple of big storylines, one involving uh, negotiations with the White House over potential gun control legislation. Um, there are some signs that th- things are moving, even in the dog days of August. Uh, we'll also talk about the fallout of a G7 summit where the president often seemed isolated on the world stage. Uh, a lot of people talking about this as a, uh, a moment where the, the rest of the world realized they can maneuver around the president and what the implications are for that around foreign policy. Well, I want to bring in a, a special guest, a good friend of ours, one of our star campaign reporters out there on the trail, making her powerhouse politics debut. I'm so excited. It's the best. <laughs> Rachel Scott, yeah, you've seen her on TV because she's been there a whole a whole bunch of uh, a bunch of times already, and you've seen her on our on air platforms as well. Uh, and, and Rachel, you had just a really interesting opportunity uh, uh, just last night, Tuesday, Tuesday, uh, where uh, the former vice president Joe Biden had a, a pretty small group of reporters in. Uh, tell us a little about that. Yeah, it's over ninety minutes, uh, roughly ten black reporters, and one of the early leading frontrunner candidates. One of these rare moments that you have to sit down and just chat. And he talked about a lot of different things, um, his electability, uh, how he's weighing with with black voters, some of the mistakes that he did in the first debate, right? Cutting himself off. He saw that as a mistake. It's something that he didn't want to do again. Um, even talking about some of his past comments that he's made about working with segregationist senators and how those are claims that he won't make again. Talked about a potential VP pick, saying that while he's not committing to anything, he does think that there needs to be either a woman or someone of color. Uh, But there were some moments that struck out to me. And while he did touch on these slip-ups and these mistakes, there's one thing that Biden is very confident about, and it's the black vote. Uh, For him, though, his voting base always skews older. And there's this conversation happening even within the black community now of why don't younger voters, younger black voters uh, like Biden? What What is stopping them? He had this moment yesterday where uh, he's talking about his record. And instead of saying how he need, he says Biden says how he needs to be more aware, but he doesn't say that he needs to be more aware of how he's communicating his record. He says he needs to be more aware that younger voters don't know much, much about history. 
And this is going to be a point of contention that I think that Biden is going to find himself in when he's trying to explain his decades-long record to younger voters. He says that he wants to go out and talk to HBCUs and fraternities and sororities and, and, and get this base riled up. But if your message is going to them and saying that you don't know much, and at this point, he turns to the younger voters in the room. And then he goes on after briefly pausing and saying, listen, some of you weren't even born then. And then he adds, so when I say things like I noticed when I said the crime epidemic, the only person who nodded was you. And he turned to he turned to a, an older black reporter in hmm. the room. So does he mean people don't understand his personal history? Because that might be true. But part of what he's going to keep struggling with is whether he can show young voters that he speaks about these issues in today's language. They might not care about his past history if he doesn't have a good a good grasp of these issues or can communicate that he has a good grasp of these issues as they're playing out in 2019. Exactly. And that is the point here is that while maybe no one can rattle off his specifics of his crime bill, right? The reality is for a lot of black young people in this country, they're still dealing with the effects and they're still dealing with the systemic and institutional racism that existed in 1994 when we were having these same conversations. And so Biden yesterday, he pointed to the fact of loyalty. He says one of his proudest things is that he has you know, turnout among black voters, that black voters turn out for him. Even in off years, they'll come out and support him. He said he's very proud of it. And then he says that you call loyalty. But this concept of loyalty is quite foreign, I think, to younger voters in general and younger black voters. I was in Chicago on the heels of the first debate. Uh, Biden was there as well um, for the Rainbow Push Coalition. And I talked to younger black voters and there was a divide, a stark divide in the room. Older black voters were willing to give Biden a pass following those comments about busing and Kamala Harris hitting him on that issue. They were willing to give him a pass. They said, all right, he'll do better. It's fine. Younger black voters rated him a 1.8. And one young black voter told me, listen, we younger generations don't have a loyalty to one any person. Uh, You know, my father grew up with Biden, he told me back in June. There's a history with the older black community that just isn't there with younger voters. And we need to seek proof in this current moment. And yesterday, when the former vice president was sitting there and talking about how, you know, maybe younger generations and even younger reporters in the room aren't aware of history, he doesn't he didn't even have a concept of how maybe he's not either communicating it effectively or how that could possibly come across as largely offensive to think, a large group of people. And I think that's a fascinating insight about about his mindset here. And, and it gets to to Mary Alice's question, one another issue around how familiar people are with him and comfortable with him versus just comfortable with his name or comfortable with the idea of him with a still very undefined field. Uh, this was a week that had uh, a poll come out that uh, that had basically a three-way tie for first. And uh, this sent political Twitter into an absolute tizzy, cable news, all kinds of blaring headlines about how Biden's no longer the front runner. We should note that there have been a, a raft of, of other polls that have come out that have confirmed what seemed to be the case before that, which is around a double-digit lead for uh, for the vice president, um, and, and even in a rare acknowledgement by the pollster that this appears to have been an outlier poll. But but he, he addressed the polls with, with you and, and your colleagues in the room. Take a listen to this. I don't think the polls are going to show much. I base it on what I feel when I go out, what I see when I walk into a crowd. Um, and uh, what I'm finding is, uh, and some of you follow me, I think, or maybe not, I don't know, but genuine enthusiasm. You know, I mean, I find, uh, you know, walk down the street, people run up to me. I walk, walk into crowds. We're getting big crowds in New Hampshire and in, uh, in 
early states. Uh, and I'm finding that uh, um, I've never been to college campus. I haven't been received well. So, Rachel, I, what I think is interesting about this is it, it, it gets to a couple of different um, storylines that, 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 that are defining the vice president's campaign at this point. One is this electability argument. And we heard uh, Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, last week make the argument directly to voters, and it, it kind of changed the, the storyline for a few days, that he's winning basically because he's the guy who can win. And uh, that is a perilous argument to pursue. Um, you can ask Hillary Clinton about that. You can ask Mitt Romney about that. This is there's a long history of front-running candidates who, who get overconfident with that. There's also, I think, this this reliance that he has on feel, that uh, because the crowds are, are, are big for him, he feels like that is demonstrating enthusiasm. I'm, I'm curious how that squares with what you've seen in, on the ground. You know, I think most voters that we talk to on the ground want to see someone that could beat Donald Trump in 2020. And that is who they're casting their vote behind. Um, but at the same time, you're right. I I, I think for, for, for Biden, he thinks that people have a gist and understand who he is. And yesterday he kept pointing to that fact. He, he told us repeatedly that that people have a sense of his character, warts, warts and all, he said, warts and all. Um and he thinks that people will give him a pass um, on certain things or, you know, he, he thinks that people look at him in like the larger context of his decades long um, career. But it's something that is a question of is he taking certain groups for for granted, too? And is he taking a potential lead in this race for granted? And you're seeing possibly a support growing for other top tier candidates. And I'm not sure he's effectively made the argument about why he thinks he's the most electable Uh you know, when he tried to talk about how he's the guy that can can work across the aisle, he act, that's actually when he had one of his biggest stumbles because his example was didn't wasn't received very well. Um, maybe he can effectively make that argument, like you said, though, Rick. That's a pretty perilous argument to make. Uh, but I don't even know if he's made that argument very well. Uh, you know, I'm also struck by whether uh, we were talking before about the generational divide among Black voters, but there is just a larger generational divide playing out in the Democratic primary for sure. And it is notable that those other two that have been clipping at his heels, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, do so well with younger voters um, and and really have still the enthusiasm of younger voters. And so he might be feeling some enthusiasm, but maybe he's not attending any of their events. That's yeah. yeah, and that's and that's a good point. You only get to go to your own, <laughs> typically, <laughs> typically speaking. And the dynamics from here will change. I mean, that, they, we we talked about the uh, the debate in September, and um, without knowing with any finality what things look like, there's a, a a strong likelihood, let's say, that Joe Biden will have to face some of the front runners he hasn't faced before. He hasn't actually been on a debate stage yet with Elizabeth Warren, who's been very critical of, of his record going back decades. And he's going to come but face... But also critical of his ideas for the future. I mean, yeah. it, she, she's out there at the Democratic Committee meeting this week saying that a piecemeal approach, a, a middle-of-the-ground approach to the future for the party isn't the way of the party. And she gets huge applause on standing ovations when she talks about about structural change. And that is totally seen as an attack on Biden, too. Yeah. And it, and it, and it clearly is. Uh, it, it, we know we know what that what that means. And, and, and Rachel, just finally on this on this point, um, the, 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 the kind of the feel around the vice president, I think it's unusual that he would convene a meeting like this in the first place. Um, there's a lot of confidence in that campaign um, and confidence even what he says. But what did what did you make of it? I mean, it, it seems like just an unusual thing to happen at, at any stage of a campaign and for a front runner at this stage of a campaign. Oh, definitely. I mean, 
it was. I mean, you had this moment where you're sitting there around this table and you're looking and there's 10 some odd black journalists and and the former vice president. And, you know, I think race, racial issues, racial tension in this country is so center to his campaign. And obviously, black voters are a key part of the Democratic base. And so having these conversations around race and racial injustice, I mean, even yesterday, a lot of a lot of Biden, a lot of Biden speeches talk about, you know, middle class, but we don't really talk about the poor as much. Um, so that came up. And there were certain issues that definitely did come up. Uh, but it, it struck me as the former vice president wanted to have a, a space where black journalists could ask questions that relate to our community and also just the larger political landscape in general. And there were some things that he wanted to clarify. And there were other things that he wanted to talk about how he plans to get the support of the black community, how he plans to maintain the support of the black community. And he continued to also hit on the president and kind of made this not, you know, I think yesterday, most of his most of his attacks were against the president, against white supremacy. Um, There was a moment even where he may have not realized that he was still on the record and he cussed (laughs) it's that sob um referring to what what would you do if a child came home and told you that their principal was using the same language that the president is using Mm. and he said you would want that sob fired and then he quickly recorrected himself and said that person that person fired (laughs) but it was this raw and honest sort of conversation that we were having and i think that just showed it, even that slight little mishap slip up. He yeah. was having this this conversation with us, and there were some points that really aggravated him and really touched on key issues of his campaign that you could tell are very close to his heart, and racial tension in this country was definitely one of them. Um, but he also pointed to the fact that while you do have these progressives, and yes, they're making, they're garnering support, right, especially along younger younger voters, he pointed to the fact, too, that the older black community is not as progressive as people think. Um, A lot of older black voters are conservative and have conservative values. And he thinks that by him being this more moderate type of candidate, in the end, that voting base is going to be what kind of pulls pulls him over the edge. All right. Rachel Scott, our colleague here at ABC, really appreciate it. Great debut. Great having you with us. Thanks. First we'll be time. Back. Big fan. We'll be back lots. <laughs> uh, before we go to break, Mary Alice, there's one thing I, w- I just wanted to to highlight out of the G7, because there, there, was a, there were a lot of back and forths with the president seeming to argue against himself or contradict himself in the middle of it. He got an intriguing question, to my mind, about uh, the way he negotiates. The back and forth and the changing statements from yourself so that... On- Sorry. It's the way I negotiate. So my question is, is that a strategy? Is it a strategy to call President Xi an enemy one day and then say that relations are very good the next day? And then, you know, I mean, it's gone back. It's the way I negotiate. It's done very well for me over the years, and it's doing even better for the country. That just struck me, Mary Alice, as one of those moments where the president was being extremely honest or entirely dishonest. And it's hard to tell which is which. And sometimes both things are true with him because sometimes 
he is honest in his dishonesty, and sometimes I think he's I dishonest in his honesty. I'll unpack that in a later episode. <laughs> but the bottom line, it, to my mind, is it felt it felt to me that in addition to the president acknowledging that, that a lot of the world community is starting to acknowledge that as well. That the president will say outrageous things, false things. He will just claim things. He will make up conversations with world leaders at times. Uh, he will contradict himself in public. He will say things that are just flatly not true. He will say he didn't say things that he clearly just said. And yet the rest of the world, rather than even seeking to fight it now, seems to be maneuvering around it. That to me was one takeaway from the G7 meeting. Absolutely. And they're realizing that chaos theory, it just revolves, that this whole White House is totally uh, entrapped in a chaos theory and that, that the only way to sort of deal with it is to accept that or to ignore it, but to not get caught up in it. Um, and I, I think that, like you said, we saw a lot of those world leaders in some ways outmaneuver because they, to them, the president looks one note. It's been the same note. It might be a, a crazy chaos theory note, but it's the same. It's the same. And it's been it's been going on for, for quite a while now. Well, and to his point, too, just really quickly, Rick, about about how it's been working well for the country. There are definitely things that have been working well here. But a lot of those uh, big deals that he keeps gunning for, whether it's a trade deal with China or even finishing a, a redone NAFTA trade deal, some of his other negotiations, uh, he's still hoping for them. He's still telling the country to wait and see and have faith in his negotiating style. And at some point, he's going to have to show that he can actually deliver if he's going to be this erratic in his strategy. And segue alert, we know a senator who is concerned about very similar things about the meetings uh, at at the G7. Um, Also, a senator that wanted to go to Russia, but says the Russians are telling him he's not invited. He doesn't even have a visa to go. We are, after the break, going to chat with Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Stick with us. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics, and we're pleased to be joined now by Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, who's been uh, front and center on a couple of issues uh, late this month, uh, including some foreign policy issues and some issues around gun control. Senator, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with foreign policy and some of the the fallout from the G7. And uh, we saw the president who... Um, as some observers have said, seem to be arguing with himself on some big issues. Um, China trade, of course, uh, Iran, uh, Russia looming is a big issue always. What did you make of the of the G7 and, and where, where it puts the United States in terms of security and in terms of uh, economic security and economic certainty? It was so sad to watch. Uh, you know, we are uh, essentially a nuisance power today. Uh, these uh, nations that we're sitting with at the G7 are just trying to survive a meeting with Donald Trump making arrangements without us and around us. Uh, and it's you know, catastrophic in the long run to U.S. national security interests. You know, of course, if the president is sincere in making this trade war with China his top priority, then he should have ordered the G7 in a way that would get other nations to join us. It didn't seem like he had the faintest interest in actually trying to make the agenda match up with his goals. He complained about the agenda, seemed to make some last-minute suggestions to change it. Uh, But the leadership at the G7 was provided by uh, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, And thank goodness for it, that he was able to uh, move uh, at least some members of the G7 forward on uh, environmental issues and economic and security issues. But uh, it's a real sad sight to see the United States become so, so weak in the world and 
you know, uh, we're a curiosity, uh, but not much more. And I want to ask a little bit more about Russia, because you were denied a visa uh, to, to attend as part of a congressional delegation uh, visit. Um, Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican from Wisconsin, also would have been part of that group, as I understand it, looking to go there. What were you hoping to accomplish? And, and, to your, and uh, the Russians are still saying that they never denied the visa, but they're you know, quite angry at other things you have said. What, what, what is the upshot and what's the latest, as you know it, as to the status of that trip and what you were, what you were hoping to achieve while there? Well, you know, I'm not going to Moscow because the Russians denied my visa. I don't have a visa to go to Russia. I can't go, and it's only the Russian government that uh, could provide it. Uh, it's not shocking to me that they denied me a visa. I've been a tough critic of uh, Russia's information warfare. They're meddling in the U.S. elections. I was uh, in Ukraine uh, three different times with Senator McCain back in 2013, 2014, when uh, that revolution of dignity was happening uh, there. Um, but I was going to Moscow to try to find some avenues of cooperation. Uh, you know, unfortunately, it has fallen to members of the Foreign Relations Committee to keep relationships alive around the globe because this administration isn't interested in doing it. We have a you know, totally dysfunctional relationship with Russia, and yet there are these important places where we have to cooperate, whether it be Syria or uh, Iran or counterterrorism. So, you know, we were going there, you know, certainly to raise objections to the things that we still protest uh, regarding Moscow's occupation of Ukraine and their continued efforts to try to uh, screw with us uh, politically, uh, domestically in the United States. But we also were trying to find avenues of cooperation. And, you know, if you're not letting, you know, fairly mainstream foreign policy uh, thinkers like myself and Ron Johnson into Moscow, then I'm not sure who they are going to let in. And it just serves to ultimately atrophy our relationship um, and make it much harder for you know any future president to try to put this bilateral relationship between the United States and Russia back together. I want to pivot to the other headline that Rick was talking about. Um, there's been so much concern from voters about whether or not Washington's going to do anything on gun safety reforms. And you have said you're still optimistic. Uh, I think that surprised a lot of folks here in Washington, political reporters like myself who are constantly skeptical. Uh, where are negotiations? What conversations are you having with the White House still? I mean, we're in the middle of negotiations with the White House as we speak. Um, my office has been in touch with the White House and a handful of other congressional offices on a daily basis. Uh, and uh, I have been in touch with the White House as well. I haven't spoken to the president in a number of weeks, but I did speak with him uh, shortly after the El Paso and Dayton shootings, in which he uh, made clear to me that he wanted to uh, negotiate some expansion of background checks and you know, even uh, when there was a burst of reporting uh, a couple weeks ago suggesting that the president had talked with the NRA and had reversed course, um, the White House immediately reached back out to me and said, no, we're, you know, don't believe those stories. We are sincere about trying to get something done on background checks. We want to build a process for negotiations. And so we're in that process this week. I think the chances are still less than 50-50 that we end up with a a significant background checks expansion that the president supports and that can get 60 votes in the Senate. But uh, we're talking in a more substantive way than we have ever done before during the Trump administration. And uh, I don't I don't know that optimistic is the word, but I'm absolutely willing to sit at the table with this uh, administration on background checks. Uh, and I think, you know, in the next couple of weeks, we'll know whether they're serious or whether after every single one of our meetings they are going back and 
giving a readout to the NRA and ultimately continuing to allow the gun lobby to have a veto power. If that's the case, then we're not getting a deal. And have you had any more conversations with Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader there in the Senate? Well, I, I think McConnell has, you know, chosen his words carefully. He has said that he's willing to bring background checks uh, to the floor of the Senate if it can get 50 votes. And I think there's a pretty simple pathway to 60 votes. That's an endorsement of a bill by the president of the United States. Remember, 95 percent of Americans support universal background checks. Republicans are losing seats by the dozens all around the country because of their obstinance on the issue of guns. And that has been a pretty quick political transformation. I mean, in 2016, I wouldn't claim to say that the issue of background checks was a you know, uh, prime voting issue for swing uh, voters in this country. It is now. And so Republicans are sort of coming to grips with that, which is why if the president endorses a background checks bill, I don't think Republicans in significant numbers in the Senate are going to take him on. And so I think McConnell's left the door open because he wants to see if the president puts a bill on the table. Those key words, if the president, I mean, negotiating with the White House is one thing. Uh, Having the president's word on something is another. And I I know you spoke to him and and he said to you that he's committed to this. But he's also said a whole lot of things that make it look like we're seeing a replay of what was said after Parkland. And and it looks like he's walking back to a different position. Do you have a clear sense of what he is actually committed to, what he considers to be meaningful in terms of background checks? Uh, And and you talk about your pessimism of less than 50-50 here. How much of that is just based on not knowing where the president himself is as of today? Yeah, most of it. I mean, I don't know where the president is. You know, I had a conversation with him. Uh, We did not get into the details about exactly, you know, what parts of the mansion to me, background checks, compromise he supports and he doesn't support. Um, And, of course, I've been through this before. After Parkland, uh, he invited me and a handful of others over to the White House for a meeting that was televised in which he seemed to endorse expanded background checks. And then within 24 hours, he had reversed himself. I guess the reason why I'm a little bit more optimistic this time is that, you know, we are now um, three weeks from my conversation with him and we are still in these conversations. And I think some of the reporting was probably a little inaccurate in that it said, well, the president isn't for universal background checks. Um, Well, that's not really news. I don't think the president was ever for universal background checks. I think he may support expanding background checks to things like gun shows. Um, But yes, in the end, I don't know where the president is. I I think there's a good chance he will continue to allow the NRA to set policy on guns in the uh, White House. But I don't know. The stakes here are life and death. Uh, They really are. And so I feel an obligation to, you know, be at the table knowing that once again, I might get the football yanked out from under me as I try to kick it. I I guess I'm willing to suffer that embarrassment if there's even a, a, a remote chance that we can pass a bill that saves lives. You tweeted this week that the the crisis in the Amazon needed more global attention. Uh, you actually called the the twenty million or so that was dedicated from the G seven offensive and said you didn't know which was more offensive that or the fact that it looked like Brazil was going to reject that money. What do you think is an appropriate sum for the U.S. to to say they'd be willing to contribute to fight fires there? Well, I think the United States has to you know offer both carrots and sticks. I mean, I, I don't have a specific dollar amount in my mind, but given the, 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 the scope of the environmental damage to the United States and the world, we should be talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, not tens of millions of uh, dollars. And we should also be making it clear to the Brazilians that if 
you know, they don't get serious about this and stop blaming the wildfires on environmental action groups, um, that the nature of our economic and security relationship with Brazil is going to have to change as well. You know, we have a number of different programs uh, through the appropriations process that, that in which we support Brazil. Uh, and if they're going to let these fires burn, if they're going to continue to deforest the Amazon, um, then I think we have to rethink whether we want to sort of be in this kind of business. I think one of the most important levers we have is this free trade agreement, because, you know, Bolsonaro understands that his trade agreement with Europe may be on the rocks. And he's telling people publicly and privately that he doesn't really worry about that because he's going to get a trade agreement from the United States. Well, let's make it clear that that's not going to happen if they don't get serious about deforestation. And you can't get a trade agreement without Democrats. So I think we need to be using the appropriations process through carrots and sticks and making it clear that there's no trade agreement with Brazil uh, if there isn't some serious progress made on the fires and on the broader uh, attack on the Amazon that has come from the Brazilian administration. And fi- finally, Senator Murphy, uh, news today that your colleague, Senator Isaacson of Georgia, is going to be leaving the Senate, resigning at the end of 2019, citing uh, a range of health considerations. This puts both of Georgia's Senate seats on on the ballot in 2020. Uh, you've talked up uh, the, your party's prospects of a takeover uh, of the chamber in 2020. Uh, what does this do to those calculations? How critical do you think uh, it will be for Democrats to, to make a run in ca- at capturing at least one of the two Senate seats in the state of Georgia? Well, uh, that's actually the first I've heard of that. I have been on the road all morning, and my initial reaction is one of sorrow. Uh, Johnny Isaacson is a, is a throwback. Um, he and I, you know, have worked. He's one of the Republicans who, um, you know, is really willing to, you know, reach out across the aisle. He's not a sort of rhetorical bomb thrower. He's, you know, one of the folks who, you know, occasionally helps make the place work. And so, well, I certainly relish the prospect that we might be able to pick up a seat in the Senate uh, as we lose um, these senators who, you know, often um, served to calm down uh, the rhetoric and the tensions in the building. Um, That makes me a little bit sad. But, uh, you know, Georgia is clearly a place that is changing very quickly. Witness uh, Lucy McBath, uh, a, a, a mother of the gun control movement whose son was killed uh, in a shooting who ended up winning a seat that had been controlled by Republicans for uh, decades and decades. She's a representation of, you know, how Georgia has changed very quickly. And we certainly have some really important opportunities there. But I'm frankly sorry that Johnny is leaving. He's had some real health concerns that he's been dealing with. But um, as Republicans go, uh, he's been a pretty darn good senator. And how badly would you like Stacey Abrams to jump into that race? It's the, it's the name on the tip of uh, yeah. every Democrat's tongue. I know. I, I know she's got some really important projects uh, going on. But, uh, you know, we, we would uh, we'd have a great shot at winning, uh, you know, either one of those seats if Stacey's name was uh, on the ballot. we got a couple other uh, interesting candidates there, including a former son of Connecticut, uh, Matt Lieberman. Uh, uh, Joe Lieberman's son is interested in, uh, one of those uh, Senate seats, and I haven't closely tracked that race, but that's certainly an interesting name to watch. Uh, a, a big name in Connecticut politics, indeed. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut. Thanks for joining. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. 
So, Mary Alice, I think on this gun issue, I, the wild card, as we know, is the president. I think you heard Senator Murphy acknowledge that, that even having had the direct conversations, that um, it doesn't guarantee anything. And no one really knows where his head is at. And he remains the biggest factor as to whether this happens. You know, a lot has happened in the news in the last couple of weeks, as always happens in these news environments. Uh, uh, I just I wonder how much the focus will return to this after Labor Day, uh, given that other things have happened in the news. Sure. And this is part of the reason we've seen Republicans so often hesitant to back any piece of legislation. They don't want to look on the hook for something that the president 24 hours later is going to tweet he doesn't like. But I was fascinated by the fact that uh, the, the senator there said that conversations with the White House are continuing, quote, as we speak. Considering how the president has been all over the map on this issue at his rallies when he's talking to reporters, the idea that White House staff is still engaging on it is interesting. And and I understand why he's uh, sticking with his fight. And one last word before we go about uh, about debates. Uh, We are sitting here on Wednesday, which is the deadline for polling to qualify candidates for the debate as of uh, are speaking now. There are 10 candidates who have qualified. And Mary Alice, I know you've been talking to a lot of the campaigns. Just, what's the, what is the bottom line about how important it is to qualify for this debate in September and then the subsequent wait in October? We've already seen candidates begin to drop out. The winnowing has begun. Uh, this is a pretty major marking point, no? Absolutely. Especially for those candidates that, frankly, weren't that close. I think they are going to feel a lot of pressure to bow out gracefully at this moment. What's tricky, though, is that there are a few candidates who are pretty close, and the benchmarks stay the same for the September debate and the October debate. So I can imagine that some of those candidates who are close, who are on the cusp, who've been actively petitioning the DNC for a spot on that stage, I imagine that they will actually feel pressure from their supporters to stick it out and maybe earn a spot in October. And shameless plug, it won't be the won't be the last of these shameless plugs. That debate will be two weeks from now, September 12th, on ABC News and on Univision. And we will be down there in Houston to cover all of it. Uh, thank you to Mary Alice. Thank you also to Rachel Scott for sharing some perspectives with us today. Thank you to the entire team, Angie Yak, Trevor Hastings, the man behind the controls, and Avery Miller uh, back at the RIM in D.C. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of Powerhouse Politics.